0: Welcome to the Angler's Channel Insider Podcast, presented by Sportsman's Warehouse, your fishing and outdoor store. And here are your hosts, AC Insiders, Danny Blandford and Vance McCullough.
1: All right, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the AC Insiders Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Blandford, co-host Vance McCullough. This operation is powered by Mercury Marine with Relyon Lithium providing the juice And of course, our friends at Ranger Boats and Sportsman's Warehouse helped make all this possible. And today we're starting off with a guest we've actually talked to this year. He's been winning left and right, and we got him the day after becoming an international championship champion in the 2023 Pan Am Bass Championship, the cowboy himself, Mr. Joey Suentes. Joey, you're coming to us from the farm after taking an international championship title, dude. What a year. Tell us about it
2: yeah um uh an amazing year two elite series wins i got the rookie of the year title got that done uh which was not easy um and then to to kind of top off the season me uh, i fished for team usa in the pan american games down here in hot springs arkansas and lake hamilton and larry nixon was my partner in that and uh the whole team as a whole we took home gold and then me and Larry won the individual outright. So it was, it was a really good way to finish the season.
1: That's awesome. And Larry's been a mentor a year since the beginning. I know we've talked about that. How was that for all that to come together at the end of the year to be sharing a boat with your mentor? And it gives me goosebumps. I'm sure it's got to be kind of surreal for you, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. It kind of, kind of makes me want to cry a little bit. I'm not going to lie to you. I, uh, and I did, I teared up on stage when they announced it. It just, it, it was really cool. It means probably the most out of anything this year, just because, you know, Larry's been a huge part of my career and, um, he's, he's done so much for the fishing industry. He's just a really good guy and, um, I love him and I'll never forget that, uh, could potentially be the last tournament that you ever see Larry Nixon fish. So, um, it's, uh, it was pretty cool, pretty special.
1: That's awesome. For people that don't know, I, you know, I'm a bass junkie and I had to do a little bit of research to learn more about this Pan Am bass concept and what we had going on there. And the best piece that I found was actually pinned by somebody there in Hot Springs, a local reporter, but maybe tell guys a little bit, this is a path towards taking bass fishing to the Olympic level. Is that correct?
2: Yes. Yes. That's the plan um, of all of it. We're, we're trying to get, um, Trying to get these different countries in and show there's so many different organizations that you have to go through to get to the Olympic, you know, level and get qualified to to do that um and recognized. Um so yeah, that's the goal. And they're they're putting on a really good tournament. I mean, we've got I don't know how many exactly how many countries came in, but uh they're just they're just got all these tournaments in place. We got world championships in two years on in hot springs. It'll be on Wachita or Hamilton. Um, So yeah, that's the goal. And it's really a good tournament. It was ran really well. And uh, a lot of fun to see these other countries and the enthusiasm that they have for bass fishing. It's, it's really unbelievable. Um, It just gets you a little more fire, you know, like going, uh, you know, fuel in your career and like just, uh, it's just really cool, man. It was, it was, it was a lot of fun.
1: It's got to make you feel like you're getting to be a part of something even bigger after the year you've had, and then see the potential to be a part of it at an international level. The thing that catches me or surprises me, everything we do on the bass fishing side, it feels very Americanized, right? I mean the the equipment, the stuff, and all that. Do you think it trans? Is it trans? Were you surprised to see it translating the way that it is to other countries?
2: Um. Uh, yeah. I mean, they. You know. They use a lot. I mean, they 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 don't have the stuff obviously that we have. And uh, bass fishing is so American, but but they love it there. I mean, they they those other countries, man, they love it. They do it. Um, and and they've got they've got more stuff than you think. Uh, so they've got some good technology there, and some of the fishing, but the boats and stuff they have. You know, of course, a lot of them borrowed stuff, but. But um, uh, they're they're into it just as much as we are, and they have the passion for it but just like us. It's just not as big. But uh, and then some countries are dealing with, you know, I think Colombia was talking about they were gonna they were trying to ban bass fishing in their in their country. Their government is is pretty bad. So, um, I don't know. It's just it was uh, it was cool to see.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of what I was thinking in terms of kind of from that geopolitical element, right? I mean, you know what it takes, yeah. how much money, how much equipment and all that stuff. And when I look at some of the places that we're competing, I'm assuming that people who get to do that from some of these other nations like El Salvador and Guatemala, it, like you made made a comment about some borrowed equipment. I can't imagine some of those places have the access to the resources that we have in terms of equipment and that kind of thing. So it, it, it ha- in my mind, it would have to be a pretty elite sport in some of these other countries in order you know it's not something that every citizen can go do right that i don't know how to word that and be politically correct but it surprised me to see you know el salvador fielding a bass team i guess is kind of where i'm at on that or guatemala for example so i think it's cool to see it um and it's cool that we're bringing some more awareness to it so hopefully it's something that takes off i think you guys need to go out of out of country and and fish Right. Because I think they would look at you guys as the experts. We'll bring them to my pond and see if they can catch anything. Right. And so have you have fished out of the country as part of this program already, haven't you?
2: Uh, No, I, I haven't. I haven't fished out of the country. I, that was my you know goal was to try and go fish these other, you know, go to Spain or Portugal or South Africa. They're they're wanting to host something there. Um, wherever yeah I would love to I'd love to be in their shoes and and go fish out of what the, the equipment that they have and do that I think you'll you'll see that we'll still do pretty well but um yeah. it would be a it it would be really fun to do I'm I wouldn't if if they invite me I think I might be on the reserve to go to Portugal in October but um I didn't make the official team for this year for that tournament but um just because they had everybody in place but no
1: I'd, I'd love to do that It'd be fun some of the guys on the team have competed in Spain and other places, right? My memory serves me correctly. Yeah. have gone out and yes. competed. Just, you haven't had that opportunity. I got you.
2: Right. Yeah, busy, I haven't.
1: Been busy at home, folks. For those of you who don't know, he's been busy here in the stateside uh, kicking tail for the entire season. As he mentioned in the leadoff, two wins and rookie of the year. Uh, I wanted to pick the international element. I know Vance has some questions about the ROI and, and what you got accomplished this year. So I'll throw it over to Vance and – Vance, let's
3: find out. Uh, let's find out a little bit more about this season. Yeah, Joey, congratulations on a great uh, season on the Elite Series. I know you got to fish against your your hero uh, Larry Nixon all year long. It must have been really cool to fish with him at the end there. But uh, you know, when you're on the water fishing, you know, opposed to Larry Nixon and the rest of that field, uh, man, everybody talks about versatility. They talk about versatility. Be versatile you won two tournaments on two drastically different fisheries doing practically the same thing did you not? Yeah
2: I did uh there's no doubt I was uh using my forward-facing sonar and I caught it both you know different setups on the drop shot but um using the same technique pretty much that I did you know catching them on Seminole and in, in, uh, St Clair
3: yeah I was at that sem- tournament covering that that deal live and following around I got to watch you a little bit. Uh, talk to me about the difference in your setup at a Seminole versus you know up north
2: yeah so you know Seminole and typically down south you're fishing around a lot more structure trees brush piles um grass and so my setup at Seminole I was in I was in some really thick timber um and not only was it you know thick it was it was there was you're gonna you have a high chance of getting hung up in the trees. Potentially when you hook one of those big fish, it could get hung in a tree. So I had my drop shot set up really beefed up. I had like 12 pound tests. I was still using a spinning rod, but I had like a seven six heavy spinning rod. Um it just felt comfortable for me to be using a drop shot with a with a spinning rod. I'm not big into that with a bait caster. So I had that set up. I had a rebar hook on there, just rigged weedless with a robo worm. Um and and a you know regular old drop shot weight, but um and then St. Clair was a little different. You know, it's wide open there. I mean, I, I was fishing around a little bit of grass, but you don't need to you know make your your bait weedless or anything like that. So I was just using a Fusion 19, just exposed drop shot hook, just nose hooking the the flatworm, and um much smaller line. I was using six pound test there. Uh, actually, I think I was using eight. I think I could get away with eight-pound test there and, um, you know, a lighter lighter spinning rod and trying to finesse some, some more of those fish in. So.
3: so those subtleties aside, what you were doing was essentially the same technique at heart. Uh, not unheard of to catch fish at the mouth of Spring Creek in Seminole uh, on a drop shot. It is kind of unheard of to win a four-day tournament that time of year there uh, with that technique. What, you know, how important is it, I guess uh, would be the question to find something that reminds you of home, something in your comfort zone as you go tournament to tournament, you know, across the calendar, across the country, how important is it to find something that's in your wheelhouse to make you competitive?
2: Yeah, I think it's, I think that's why guys win tournaments. I mean, they, they, they do things that they like to do and they got confidence in and, Um, I, I really, I feel like I'm pretty versatile though. I like to do a lot of different things. Um, but that, that just the fish set up perfectly for, for me to do that. I do like to prefer, I prefer to finesse fish a little bit more So, so, uh, yeah, it lined up really good and, um, you, you gotta have that to win tournaments. I think, you know, I mean, you look, look back at guys winning other ones. I mean, it was, you know, in their comfort zone in their wheelhouse and, and it uh, just lined up with me. So,
3: you know, Back in the day, there was not a drop shot technique. We, we didn't know about it or whatever. When Larry Nixon was on top of the bass fishing world back in the 80s, 70s. But the, some people called him a finesse fisherman just because he used the worm and lighter line than anybody else. It was Texas rig, but it's a you know, light line, lighter line setup than most guys. Uh, how much have you borrowed from him over the years? And just that mentality, a little bit lighter, a little more subtle get more bites than the next guy.
2: 100% everything. I it started when I was a co-angler in the back of the boat fishing with Larry Nixon um, and just seeing his his style uh, and, and and I mean it, it just works like it's there's no doubt that it works finesse fishing um a light line and and downsizing on weights it just make to me it made really a lot of sense it makes the your bait more natural looking I've always tried to do that too is is I want to I want my bait it, it you got to have a lot of patience sometimes you know to make that bait's bait. got to fall down real slow to get down there but it's more natural and that gets more bites and so uh Larry's taught me that hands down I, I owe all that to him
1: I want to jump back to this past past weekend of fishing with Larry you guys spent a day in a boat how'd you catch him two days in the boat how'd you catch him this past weekend in the Pan Am
2: so we caught everything schooling all the fish were visually blowing up we I, I tried to catch those fish um on live scope and looking at them like while they were down but you could not get them to bite they they just were only when they were blowing up is the only time they were active and you could trick them into getting a bait to uh, uh to eating your bait. So, um, we were just out there in, um, right there close to takeoff. And we were just basically, uh, we were idling around. We had little sweet spots where there was bigger fish that were blowing up and we'd sit there with a top water bait. And as soon as they blow up, Larry throw a top water bait on them. I, I would throw a fluke. Um, I had that rig, you know, makes the, uh, bait fish really good. Um, and we'd get, you know, pretty much have to get lucky and get one of those big ones to eat and, um, 12 pounds a day is really good you know pretty good there for daytime tournaments uh this time of year so uh we, we managed to get a good bite each day to bump us up to 12 pounds
1: so was it a deal basically by the by the time it was all said and done were you basically standing there rod in hand until you seen them
2: yeah that's the best way to do it you don't want to cast because i mean you know you have a split second to get your bait there on top of the fish where they're blowing up at and um so you just kind of waited you just sat there and waited and and we, you know, I would be looking out the front. Larry would be looking out at the back of the boat. And um, whenever one blew up, we'd, we'd yell, hey, <laughs> get a bait in there. And so we'd, we'd chuck our stuff in there and uh, get bit most with of the time. Your,
1: with your forward-facing sonar experience, you've won with it. You've shown us you're effective with it. Could you use it to kind of be able to see where the schools were moving or if there were some heading for the surface or something? Or was it just strictly visual? You couldn't really see what they were doing on forward-facing. It went on the move, Vance. Uh, the yeah, okay. I could
2: see some fish uh, uh, for sure. They were. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry. My my daughter came out here and she was she was yelling and screaming, and I didn't want to <laughs> interrupt you guys. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we got you. Okay. Um. So. Yeah, I could see. I could definitely see the schools of fish. Um, out there swimming around. Um, but like I said, it, you 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 couldn't get them to bite. I mean, there was maybe a couple times where I'd seen them and they looked like they were coming up. And I said, Larry, get ready. I see some coming up. And then they would start blowing. So we had a little bit extra clue about to blow up over there. But I would say, you know, 75, 80% of the time, it was just being at the right place at the right time and, and making the right cast.
1: Gotcha. I want to throw one more as, of how it relates to uh your rookie of the year you know prior since you've won rookie of the year in your tournament and stuff postseason we've seen a lot of flare-ups about forward-facing sonar and, and where people fall on it i mean your two wins were using it where where do you land on that i mean do you feel like it's spotlighting for bass you feel like it's just a new tool in the arsenal would you have been a rookie of the year without it
2: um yeah i think it's another tool um I think the sport's changing. We, we're we going to have, you know, it's hard to think, but like, there'll be something else new that comes out that um that's going to help us catch more fish and, and, you know, they'll, they'll probably be some grumbling about it too. So um, I, I like it. I, I don't, I don't think there's any need to ban, you know, live scope or anything like that. I, I think it's just, you know, the, you're seeing a change in younger anglers and, and, fishing styles finesse fishing's kind of more of a thing now and I think that'll be more of a thing just because you know the the only thing about live scope is you're going to have we're going to have more pressured fisheries be- for sure because you know more fish are going to be caught that maybe weren't being fished for um but I don't think it's going to damage or hurt anything I don't think there's any need to ban it um and yeah it was a it was definitely a huge success to to my my season this year I mean there's no doubt um I can't sit here and say that, you know, I I still would have won if I didn't have it. But I like to think that I probably would just because I still would have been out there in those same places using 2D. I wouldn't have been catching as many fish and 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 maybe I wouldn't have caught as many big ones, but um it's it's hard to say, but it, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's definitely a, a good tool that we have um and and I I, I kind of want to continue to use it. I think it's I think it's fun. I mean, you know, you hear a lot of grumbling about it, but to sit there and watch fish, you know, go and eat your bait like live on your on your sonar is is a blast to me. I um, I enjoy it. I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. I also love fishing on the bank and fishing top water and 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 doing various things like that too. So you got to be versatile. To I didn't I didn't win. I didn't do well in every single tournament this year using forward facing sonar. I had to I had to you know be very versatile and do other things throughout the year so um and i think kyle welcher you know he would he would attest to that too he did various things too so it's uh -hmm. it's just another tool that we're going to use to to be successful
1: well obviously you did a great job on using it Uh, some of the gripe has been about the fans of fishing i kind of wonder how much say we should actually have i mean fishing is a participation sport so to think that we're ever going to mimic the experiences or things that you guys are having on the water by watching it through a computer screen. I think that's kind of a farce. We're, we're, we're chasing something we're not actually ever going to catch. Right. So I don't think it's fair to blame the, well, it's boring for the viewers. I don't, I don't care for that one, but uh, you know, in terms of the rookie of the year season, when were you feeling good about it happening? Did you pretty well,
3: have, uh,
1: you, I, I'm trying to think, was it pretty well a lock after St. Clair or you had to keep catching them?
2: And now it, it wasn't a, it, it wasn't a lock just because, Vegeta was so um, he was so close there, you know. That's but right. That's right. It it definitely gave me a, a nice little cushion there, you know. And then going into Champlain, you know, he wins, and like mm-hmm. I had, I I had to have had a really good finish there, like hands down, and I did. I almost made the top ten. I finished eleventh place, so that was really big, you know. That day three of that tournament, I caught a I caught a big bag, and I bounced myself up almost almost a couple ounces or or so from making the uh, making the top 10. And um, now that last tournament, man, it was so stressful. I, I, I wanted to get it done. Um, And he was once again, he's back in the top 10. And so I had to catch him and, and um, I made the right decisions. I trusted my gut and I, I fished, you know, the areas I had confidence in and, and pulled it out.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. What a what a difference of two two rookie stories, too, right? Coming from another country and doing things the way that he's doing and and you being cowboy Joey from Arkansas, right? That that's pretty opposite <laughs> yeah. ends of the spectrum. And and obviously you both were doing the same thing of mastering finesse and fishing for fish that other guys weren't catching. So congrats on that. I know Vance, you had a couple other questions about the season itself. Why don't you fire away?
3: Yeah, no, the really the big burning question on my mind, Joey, is uh Man, what's up with a hat? Does it ever blow off when you're running down the lake, or uh, you know, a <laughs> wide brim hat? How did you come to uh, adopt that? I mean, it reminds me of another famous Arkansas. In like yeah, Fort Good, right. So I get that question probably the most
2: it comes off when I'm running down the lake. There's there's no possible way unless you've maybe put a chin strap on it, and even then, by the time I got to my spot, the bill on it would be like folded straight up. Against my head, so it, it would look terrible. I didn't want to damage it too bad, um, and look look like an idiot. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, now, yeah, I just put it down on the boat when I'm running, and and I wear it on there. And you know, I I I've been a farmer, kind of the the. I I don't consider myself a cowboy at all. Um, I'm just a cattle farmer. I wear my hat all the time on the farm, um, and uh, I. I thought it was a great thing to do I had a I had a sponsor of mine here in town it's called Cowboy Chrysler Dodge Jeep and Ram here in Arkansas and I I went in to meet the owner and I had my hat on you know uh talking to him about getting a sponsorship for maybe it was about five or six years ago and he said he said something about like hey you ought to wear your hat while you're fishing and I said oh no I won't do that you know and then I went home and thought about it and uh it's a it's a good kind of marketing move for me i mean honestly you have mm-hmm. to i tell kids all this all the time you have to set yourself apart in this industry um just because everybody looks the same and and it's just a it's just another side of, of the fishing industry that you got to think about and so it was just something that was really simple that i did and uh you know uh if i don't have my hat on nobody knows who i am so <laughs> it's pretty cool
3: <laughs> alter ego i like that no, that's yeah yeah, yeah, you touched on something very important there, Joey. The marketing aspect of this, how you stay in the sport, you're not always going to catch them. I mean, there's going to be times no. when you've got to rely on your personality and being set apart and being known, whether it's for a technique or, uh, you know, your branding and all of that. That is a, an important part of, of longevity in the sport, is it not?
2: Yeah, it it really is. I mean, because realistically, like, I had a phenomenal year this year, two wins, you know, obviously I'm not ever going to win rookie of the year again, but two wins in the same year. I mean, uh, even one win, like every year it's just, it just doesn't happen. I mean, um, so you, you've got to be smart and, um, and do those things, you know, to, to, to have a long career at this. I mean, it's, it's, it's just the way it is fishing. We're fishing for an, an animal that swims around in the water. <laughs> it's not a given. Nothing's right. given in it. So you know, it's uh, so yeah.
1: Oh, well, we have a saying, and I think it, it's probably pervasive across the country. But I don't know if we were recording Joey when we quizzed you on your your farmer status. But there's a saying that that guy's all 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 hat and no cattle, referring to a you know to a cowboy he said he's all hat and no cattle. And uh, for if you folks weren't listening, or we weren't recording when we brought Joey on, he does have the cattle and the acreage to back it up. And you guys won't see this, but we pulled him out from underneath the tractor. Uh, to do this interview. So I'm going to throw that out there that this man is not all hat and no cattle. He is the real deal, folks. So, Joey, we appreciate you joining us today and and taking time out of your farm schedule. Uh, Man, congratulations on a phenomenal year. Uh, Soak it in, enjoy the fall, and let me guess, there's probably some hunting in your future, isn't there?
2: 100 percent i uh i'm gonna do a lot of work on the farm though but probably you know middle end of october when things cool down i'm i'm gonna be in a tree it's, it's just i love being outside and, and being kind of one with nature and getting some meat in the freezer to eat so <laughs> but hey, i appreciate gut, you guys having me on
1: hey my gut tells me the kind of year you're having you're gonna end up seeing a hell of a buck out there so good luck on the shop <laughs>
2: well I, I appreciate that
1: Great, man. Well, we would appreciate you joining us. And uh, with that, folks, we're going to take a little break. We'll be coming back. Vance and I are going to be joined by Bernie Schultz today, and we are going to be talking about vegetation and grass fishing from north to south. Bernie's made a career out of vegetation, and we are going to pick his brain on it. So stick around, and we'll be right back.
0: Sportsman's Warehouse is your one-stop convenient place to shop. Whether you're into camping, hunting, or fishing, Our expert associates can help you find the gear you need. We carry a huge assortment of quality equipment from the best manufacturers in the country and around the world. We have guns, ammo, rods, lures, not to mention every kind of outdoor clothing for the whole family. You can shop in one of our fully stocked stores or visit us online at sportsmans.com. Visit Sportsman's Warehouse, shop one of over 130 locations nationwide and growing.
3: Since 1968, one boat company has stood as the gold standard for quality, performance, innovation, safety, and resale value. Ranger Boats. Ranger's passion for perfection is evident in every boat that leaves our facilities, whether it's bound for lakes and rivers for fishing and fun, or targeting trophy tuna in blue water. Ceaseless innovation results in top-tier boats that have made Ranger the go-to for tournament anglers and weekenders alike. And the new Z521R and Z520R redefine what a premium bass boat can be. Ranger, still building legends one at a time.
0: This segment is brought to you by on Lithium Batteries, the power to challenge your limits.
1: All right, guys. Welcome back to the AC Insider Podcast. This week, we're doing a deep dive with Bernie Schultz, and we are talking about vegetation. For those that don't know, Bernie has been in the industry for quite some time, over 363 tournaments listed on Bass. So clearly the man knows a thing or two about tournament bass fishing. Over the years, he's acquired over a million bucks, and a lot of that has been attributed to vegetation in one way or another. So that's what we're going to talk to Mr. Schultz about today. Bernie, welcome to the AC Insider Podcast. Thanks for joining Thank you, us. Danny.
4: Appreciate it.
1: No problem. Hey, we were talking before we, we started recording, and, and you're known as a Florida angler, and our own AC Insider, Vance McCullough, is a Florida guy, and Vance and I were talking about tactics and things that we'd like to share with our, our listeners. And we got on the subject of vegetation. And I know you've been on a little bit of a hiatus, a torn bicep, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, I'm still wearing the the brace. I'm uh, going through physical therapy. The uh, surgery, reconnective surgery was successful and and everything looks good. The outlook's good. It's just gonna be a lot of physical therapy. They feel like you'll be out
1: slinging baits next year on the Elite Series again That's then? the
4: plan, yes, sir kind of anxious to get this thing off and, and throw it again. Do
1: you have them tighten things up so you can cast farther, maybe add a little bit to it kind of bionic like that?
4: Yeah, that'd be good. We'll see. You never know.
1: Well, as we mentioned, I know you and Vance have some history and, and I want you guys to maybe kick it off just talking about as Florida fishermen, I know it's a very important thing in Florida, um, but you've kind of shown that it, it matters everywhere. And if you guys would Vance, why don't you take it over and talk a little bit about what Florida fishing means or what, vegetation means to guys like you and bernie
3: yeah uh bernie good to talk to you again uh i know we fit together i filmed some stuff for angler channel years ago where bernie was flipped up i don't know a 40 pound limit of bass uh, on typical flipping gear and braided line and some heavy hydrilla and then uh of course recently a couple of years ago bernie had a really good tournament on Sandy cooper when the eelgrass started to come back and I know, Bernie, we talk a lot about vegetation as a broad term. Uh, are you happy around any kind of grass, or is there a particular kind that you particularly look for when you go from, you know, across the country? Is, is there a wheelhouse there you're more comfortable in, or are you just, just playing whatever the, the playing field gives you there?
4: Uh, a l- little of both. I mean, there's definitely preferred types of vegetation that are, well-known uh for holding bass across the country hydrilla milfoil um, eelgrass can be very productive certain types of pond weeds lily pads bulrushes flat cattail reeds you know there's, there's all kinds of vegetation there are also certain types of grasses that don't hold fish very well um some naiads uh Sometimes coarse coontail is not very productive. It can be productive if there's not another option. But, uh, you know, it's it's, kind of the biggest challenge when you're dealing with lakes, no matter where you are in the country, is trying to read the grass and figuring out which particular type of vegetation they're relating to or if it's a mixture of vegetation.
3: So let's say you get to a lake like Okeechobee. You're from Arkansas. I know Mark Davis mentioned the first time he ever they opened those lots up, and he saw the lake. His, his jaws just went slack. Like, where do I even begin? And this massive field of grass. Yeah. Give a guy a tip. You know what I mean? How do you? Where do you begin? How do you break the fishery down? Yeah,
4: Okeechobee is an anomaly. Uh, I mean, it's it's a salad bowl and and shallow for the most part. The vegetation grows in less than about six or seven feet of water. Um, you know there are so many types of you know uh, invasives as well as as indigenous plants that grow there. Uh, things to look for are irregularities. Um, I try to I'll start on points of vegetation. If if I don't know a body of water, I'll start on a, on the deepest point of a of a grass line, and work my way in until I start connecting with fish. And I may go from you know, one type of grass to where it transitions to a different type of grass, or the grass gets thinner. Uh, there might be open holes behind an outside edge. Uh, it might be a void between that outside apron of grass and the shoreline. Um, there's a lot of things to consider when you're trying to pick apart a grass bed. But basically, I'm going to use lures that that cover water, and and uh, give me an opportunity to, uh, you know, try to trigger fish from a, a, a different depths, you know, whether they're in a foot of water or six feet of water or somewhere in between, I'm gonna use moving baits that try to help me uh, locate those fish. It may not be the best bait to perform on tournament day, but at least it'll give the fish away or have them give themselves away so that I know the approximate depth and, and the type of cover they're related to or, or what grass they're most related to. Um, and again, Something to really key on are irregularities, uh, points of grass, pockets in the grass, voids behind grass, or where there's mixtures of different vegetations.
3: So when you get on a lake and you break it down and you, you're fishing fast in practice and they're going to slow down a hammer on the areas where you got bites during the tournament, do you find often that you're able to expand uh, your area as the tournament goes on or are you dialing down more and more and more uh, you know, how, how widespread do those bass tend to be in grass fisheries? Do they do they hold in certain areas? Do they move around a lot? Is that, I mean, I'm speaking of broad generalities, but, you know.
4: Yeah. um, You know, case in point, this year we started on Lake Okeechobee on the Bass Elite Series, and I had the lead the first day with a 28-pound bag, and I caught those fish within a cast of my boat. I mean, literally a long cast in 360 degrees of where I started, that's where I caught all those fish. Um, ideally, you would like to be able to expand to other areas that look the same, uh, offer the same general composition of different grasses or depth and, and bottom uh, type. You know whether it's firm bottom, soft bottom, or what what the composition is. Unfortunately, in the case of Okeechobee, I wasn't able to do that, and I suffered as a result. The um, the other areas that looked like it and and had the same potential had other anglers, and I didn't want to encroach on anybody. So I kind of fished out the area I was in. I tried to expand to areas where there were no fishermen, but there weren't many fish. That's not always the case though. like I said, Okeechobee was kind of an anom- anomaly this year. A good percentage of the lake was not healthy. As you well know, there's been a just incredible amount of spraying and and weed control and it's yielded a large percentage of the lake as non-productive. The bass in Okeechobee are side feeders. They gravitate towards clear water and healthy habitat, and that was a premium when we were there back in February. Um, So that's not always the case. In in many instances, you can expand to other parts of the lake and find the same basic uh, formula, if you will, of different grasses, right bottom, uh, right water clarity, everything coming together, so that you can make the pattern repeat itself. But you know, like I said, Okeechobee was was a unique situation, and I kind of got burned after the first day. I just could never follow up with a big catch. I kind of fished out what I had.
3: That's a right. subject uh, for the upcoming AC and uh, was Angler Channel Bass Wrap Up TV show that will air on Discovery this quarter and uh, on Pursuit. In the spring, we're gonna do a segment about all the spraying in Florida. We talked to some friends, guides up on the Kissimmee chain. We're gonna to talk to Scott Martin from Lake Okeechobee down there and get a little background on that. But that is an issue that was a very much concern to our state is the spraying of the grass and not just making it harder for us to catch fish. I mean, Scott said, you know, had that tournament would have 30 bags over 30 pounds. Well, as soon as those fish came off the bed the next week. The hammers were only catching like 17 pounds down there at 150 boat tournament. So, yeah. they come off the bed, they got nowhere to go. So, that's uh, definitely a water quality issue we need to address, and I appreciate you bringing that up. I know Danny has something here.
1: Yeah, well, you guys, if you're hitting on it now, you're hitting on a, a man-made cause. But, you know, I'm in the Midwest, and Bernie up here – Uh, We're going to go through a fall turnover. Days are getting shorter. Water's getting cooler. One thing that I've always wondered as an angler, you know, we'll see. We've got a couple different kinds of grasses. We don't have hydrilla, but we've got some shoreline vegetation that grows out. That's going to start dying off. You'll still have sticks and roots, you know, stalks, but you won't have that leafy canopy cover. And then we have more like that coontail and and a type of milfoil. Um, But when that stuff starts dying, I always hear you know, club level anglers, local anglers talking about, well, the grass is dying, the fish are leaving, or hey, that dead grass held some fish in it because it was warmer. How important, in your case, you're talking about Florida killing the grass. How important is the life cycle of the grass naturally? And does it, as you head into fall and it starts to break down, do fish still want to be there or do they want to leave?
4: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, and uh, you know, our our grass cycles on its own also, even though we're kind of a, 12-month period for growth uh it does slow down there is a die-off if we have extreme cold fronts plus we have a lot of waterfowl that come in in the winter time and feed off the vegetation which kind of helps crop it off but regardless of where i go i i would prefer to fish healthy new growth you know uh whether it's at the top of the of stranding hydrilla as it reaches the surface or if it's the deep water edge or the shallow water edge where it's expanding laterally from where it starts. I always try to find healthy new growth if that's an option. When grass starts dying off, you know, it's like a kind of a million dollar question, do the fish stay or do they leave? Many cases in my travels, it seemed like from my experiences, a lot of times schooling starts taking over. so. The grass may not be, uh, it's relative to where the fish are located. They might be schooling off the points of grass or in pockets in the grass or, or you know, channels through the grass where boat traffic is common. Uh, places like that where there's, you know, locations where they can corral and, and ambush bait fish. Um, they're not in the grass per se, but grass is still pertinent to what's going on. So, you know... I. I think if if I can't find them in in the grass or I'm not able to find healthy new growth, then I'm gonna start looking adjacent to the grass, whether it's shell beds or other types of, it might be wood cover, it might be stump stump beds, it might be a drop off, or it could be just open water schooling fish.
1: The, the, the base, basically slid out to something a little fresher than maybe that grass that was dying. And, and that's been my thought. I have a background in in limnology or the study of lakes. Good green grass beds pumping oxygen into the water, right? In the summertime, that's a critical thing. Likewise, uh, a brown dying grass bed decomposition is consuming oxygen. So my mind has always lent itself towards what exactly what you said. I'd prefer a green one. I'm suspect of the brown ones, but I think you probably gave us the best tip there, and that is. They didn't abandon and go to the other end of the lake because the grass was dying. They just were fishing somewhere nearby and maybe that's an edge on. that hasn't every died yet or I the like next piece of hardcover or on. drop out away I don't from care who's so looking, that's, that's a great I point on, on that. On. And every I didn't time time think about the fact on, that I love to tie on. one on.
3: Waterfowl, you know, vegetation, me, but every I didn't once think about the
1: fact that in Florida I fished there and I've seen you guys have so many birds. Come on, man. But I never thought about the fact that they're in there essentially mowing their lawn every winter.
4: Yeah, that that's a common thing, especially when the coots show up.
1: I think you I always tie
4: one on. Whether grass is dying or or it's healthy, uh, it's all about the forage, especially this time of year. So, my advice to anybody, whether it's a, a you know a lake with a lot of vegetation or or sparse vegetation, if if the forage is related to the grass in some form or fashion, whether they're in it or schooled outside of it, that's that's where I'm going to try and focus my my efforts. I, I think the bass are going to be keen. On the forge and, and its location, and trying to fatten up for the winter. Kind of like the,
1: they're picking on everybody that's up at the salad bar.
3: That's the bullies.
1: The bullies of the salad bar. I that's like it. it. Hey, you mentioned a naiad, and I'm working on a pond here, uh, a personal project that I'm dealing with some naiad. And you, you were specific to mention that as a not productive grass. When I look at what's growing around the pond, is it because it's so thick, like they can't? move around in it i mean it's almost like it's a its own sponge and i've noticed we don't catch any fish around it it looks great from the shoreline but the bass just don't seem to use it is that a density
4: thing you think that probably contributes to it i mean they need some room to move they'll get in really dense hydrilla but people need to realize what they see at the surface or near the surface with real thick hydrilla is not the case down below that that plant mushrooms as it gets closer to the surface so especially when it gets dense Vance, you're very familiar with us, with our fishing trips, that canopy will actually deny sunlight to the lower portions of the plant, which ultimately creates a cavernous type situation where there's these big open areas beneath the the matted layer on the surface and and the bass will congregate in those caverns. And, uh, you know, I I had a day with, with, uh, you know, a once in a lifetime day with Vance filming catching big largemouth, Florida strain largemouth, under matted vegetation. And it was because there was a void beneath that where they could collect. And I mean, we didn't fish 50 yards. I caught over probably 30 fish over seven or eight pounds in a stretch 50 yards long, just going back and forth over the same, you know, piece of water.
3: And how What you I remember about that, I was yeah. going to say, we go... We moved around, you know, a quarter mile away to another little bay, and Bernie started catching the fish there on a buzz bait in areas that were not matted. They were clumpy hydrilla. You know what I mean? And it's just a totally different kind of setup, and you change tactics based on that same body of water. Right. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, people have to understand again what is on the bottom versus what they're seeing with their eyes and how that dictates your approach.
4: Well, The other thing to that, in in that scenario where we found fish in another location, you know, fish are like people. They're not all doing the same thing at the same time. There's Some Mm -hmm. will group up and some are rogues. Uh, Some are feeding by sight and and, or some are following pods of bait fish, especially this time of year. Um, The key thing about grass is that forage and bass gravitate to vegetation, whether they're in it or relating to the edge of it somehow if there's quality vegetation in a lake that's a good starting point to find bass talk to us a little bit Mm -hmm. about lure
1: selection all right that's that's the question i want from bernie i want to know when you pull up and i know it's different per vegetation right a hydrilla mat you're probably going to punch through versus something that's not topped out but bernie over your career if you had to pick three or four grass baits what are they i
4: don't know if i could narrow it to three or four um you know, well, give me the top 10 then. If you've yeah, 10. let's do that. Uh, and, and I'm going to take it from top to bottom, top of the water column to the bottom. Top waters, like Vance has had some great days on the water with me using prop baits and buzz baits. Those are, those are give uh, Walking baits, poppers, you know, uh, prop baits, especially, it seems like in, in the extreme south are really effective around fields of grass, whether they're topped out or slightly below the surface. So, Definitely want to include topwater baits of all kinds—walking, popping, chugging, uh, buzzing—and and, uh, and that can include soft plastics that are retrieved at a high rate of speed, like a toad mm-hmm. um, or hollow belly frogs. All those have their place. And then the next group of lures would be probably jerk baits. Uh, jerk baits are very effective around vegetation, whether you're fishing over the top of stranding hydrilla or submerged milfoil or the deep edge or shallow edge of a field of grass where it's, you know, you're working a clean edge of the grass itself with a jerk bait. They can be very effective. Lipless crankbaits, super effective, uh, especially ripping them through the stalks of stranding grass like hydrilla and milfoil, eel grass. All those are really good for, for ripping a, a lipless crank bait. And that also works for uh, shallow running, Build crankbaits, especially square bills. Like I like the Macbeth uh, square bills, they work really well. Um, you know, any number of, of square bills, or even sometimes a round bill type crankbait or a shad wrap can be very effective around stranding grass. Then you get to, you know, chatter baits, spinner baits, uh, swim jigs, that type of thing, swim baits, all those are, you know, those are good at at reading water or or eliminating water and putting you closer to the fish. When you get a bite, it may not be the best lure ultimately, but it can, in many cases, give the fish away, give their location Mm -hmm. away. Uh, And then when I find a concentration of fish or I find a a good depth zone that that I'm gonna focus on or a, you know, a a composition of the right grass and bottom uh, structure, then I might use bottom probing baits like jigs or soft plastic worms, and and drop shots and whatnot, and and, and it can be everything from light line to heavy braided flipping and pitching rigs. So it there's a lot of versatility involved, and and that's I think kind of been my advantage in over my career is that I was forced to be uh, versatile in my approach, just simply because in Florida there is so much variety, and if you don't adapt to all the, the changes that uh, you encounter, then you're not gonna do very well. And and that's kind of been my survival uh, traveling outside of Florida. So to answer your question, I mean, all of those lure groups are, are applicable and and effective in in catching, finding and catching bass and grass.
1: Yeah, I think the takeaway in your answer there for me was, is that the grass that you use everything in your tool, your, everything in your tackle box, you don't like the fact that there's grass narrow you down. Right. And and I That's guess I right. showed my naivety to it because I thought three or four baits. When I think grass fishing in my my neck of the woods, it's usually a single hook thing or a dual hook on a frog or something. But you're saying, no, there's what I know the rattle trap thing. I think we all know ripping rattle traps out of the grass. But right. when I think of grass, I don't think jerk baits because I think of them fouling the hooks. And then when I think of crank baits, I think it's always going to be wrapping around my line. And and what I'm hearing you say is, is that you just have to adjust. It may... Obviously, it can't be a deep jerk bait, or you got to modify some the ways you use the stuff. But you fish the grass just like you'd fish any other segment of the lake, and and checking depth and and looking for clues. And I think that's a, a great tip for everybody.
4: Yeah, I I emphasize to your listeners: be aggressive and and make the lures. You know, contact with the vegetation is important. It's it's crucial at times. You, you won't get a bite without doing it in many instances, uh, and that speaks for. Vibrating jigs, um, you know chatter baits or even swim jigs or lipless or build crank baits or spinner baits making contact that deflection and and tearing the bait out of the grass when it accelerates after contact, it triggers a strike and it's so crucial and I, that's one key thing key element that I'd like your listeners to, uh, you know, at least take away from this, this, this podcast.
3: Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about the equipment, though. I was going to say, Danny, Bernie has been very, very instrumental in designing a lot of the rod action techniques and and field testing them and giving feedback. And I've been with Bernie on some of those trips where he's using like almost prototype uh, stuff. Bernie, what do I need to know about, you know, rod action, the line material and size I'm using? If I want to play that grass ripping game, if I want to, you know, get a square bill dug in there and just rip it loose, I mean, we're we're beyond the six pound line of spinning rod at this point. What what do we what do you recommend?
4: Yeah, in in, in the context of that, you're definitely going to want some heavier line, whether it's fluorocarbon. Uh, I mean, some guys use braid, depending on the bait. Um, you know, and you're going to want a, a rod that has a, enough butt section and and power to it where you can rip the bait, uh, but you don't want to compromise the action of the lure either. I use X Prize by Shimano, my go to, whether it's Spin or bait casting is a medium heavy, generally in a 6'10 to seven two length, uh, seven foot being the mean. And, uh, you know, I'm gonna use everything from 10 pound braid on spinning that, uh, you know, may have a four carbon leader or may not, it depends on on the lure of the presentation. Uh, if I'm throwing a, you know, like a, uh, a Speed Cinco, for instance, you know, which is a swimming type, uh, ultra vibe type worm. And I'm covering water, I'm there's no leader. It's it's strictly direct braid to the to the bait and the bait's constantly moving. If I'm throwing a fluke-style bait like a D shad or something like that, then I'm probably gonna have a leader and and uh, you know probably 15 pound four carbon. But uh, for other baits, you know, it's just like the lures, you kind of have to choose your your tackle, you know, rod reel, and line uh balance all that to the lures that you're presenting and the density of the cover that you're dealing with if it's thinner cover you can get away with lighter line if not you're probably going to need to upgrade your your tackle all across the board you know you want a powerful reel you're going to want rods that have some some you know some ass to them some butt section that can really leverage the fish once you hook up or work the bait aggressively through the tops of the grass you know rip it through the grass and a, a soft action rod is not going to allow that. You're just going to ball up in the grass, and you're going to not be very effective in your presentation. So you want a crisp action, and that's what I like about Shimano's X-Pride rods is they are crisp. Um, when you snatch the rod tip, that that bait's going to react, and and that's what I like.
3: Are so, so you saying you're going to go away from the glass action cranking stick you would normally use, and you're going to use a graphite rod to crank with?
4: In some cases, yes, and in others, no. If the grass is sparse, like thin stranding grass, I'm going to try and use a lighter action composite rod, um, just because if, especially with treble hook lures, because your hook and catch ratio is better with a softer rod. Generally speaking, in in situations like that with lighter line, um, smaller treble hooks. But if I'm using, you know, an aggressive approach with single hook lures like you know, chatter baits, swim jigs, um, spinner baits, whatnot. I'm I'm going to use a heavier line, heavier rod. Right on. Yep.
3: And I guess yeah, one thing that, yeah, was is like, okay, I was going to say, Danny, it's like, uh, and you know, being from the Midwest, like when the grass does die off, the places you find fish when there is grass are probably a lot like, the places you find them when they're not is about bottom composition, not just the cover. And I was hoping Bernie could speak to using reading the vegetation as maybe a, almost a shortcut to determining what type of cover, or I'm sorry, what type of bottom composition lies beneath as we move through the seasons. Yeah. Is that that's, a good way to find hard bottom when they're spawning, et cetera.
4: Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you can definitely uh, cipher bottom composition by the type of grass that's growing there. In most cases, your flat tail, or excuse me, flat reeds, cattail, flat type reeds, they generally grow on a softer bottom, whereas your bulrushes or your tules, as they call them on the West Coast, grow in a firmer bottom. Uh, Maiden cane grass generally grows in a firmer bottom, sand or sand clay mix, uh, or maybe, firm mud it it can survive in that whereas your uh your pond grasses your naiads your milfoils and, and hydrilla they can grow in a variety of bottom types uh generally speaking it's a softer bottom but i've seen hydrilla grow in in firm white sand bottom as well it's a very hardy plant it doesn't take a whole lot to root hydrilla and hydrilla can feed in the water column as well as from the soil so that's why it's such a hardier, more diverse uh, plant where you find it. But um, yeah, lily pads, that's another giveaway. Generally, lily pads grow on soft bottom. And the good thing about that is, and something that your listeners should note is, lily pads have tubers. The root sections grow above the substrate as much as they do below. And that gives fish, especially spawning fish, something firm to bed on in a body of water where there may not be a firm substrate or, or firm bottom composition. So they'll use the pad roots to actually have their nest, you know, form their nests on. And that basically zeroes you in onto their location during the spring, um, you know, and, and holes in the grass, you know, like maiden cane. When you see stovepipe holes in a field of maiden cane in the springtime, there's a good chance that's that's gonna be a spawning bed. Or more than one spawning bed, um, mixes of cover, cypress trees, duck blinds, lay down logs mixed in with vegetation. Those are other focal places. Kind of getting off on a tangent here, but you know, I'm just trying to give your listeners ideas on where to try and start or or focus their efforts. It's if it seems overwhelming, look for irregularities. Look for you know seams in the grass where two different types of grass grow together or some hard type of cover mixes with grass. It can be a dock, the pilings of a dock with grass around the dock, that could be a focal point. Um, or the the void area under the dock, the, the platform, grass won't grow where there's no light. So a lot of times bass will relate to the dock simply because there's a void there next to a grass bed. They're more interested in what's living in the grass than, than you know, using the grass. So, you know, it's, it, you got to think outside the box sometimes about where the, the fish will relate to or how they'll position relative to grass.
1: Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about pads. So I was glad to hear you go that way. That's something we've experienced on my fishery over the past five to six years is the almost invasion of lily pads, you know, bays that used to be two to three acres of shallow wood cover, Now there's solid lily pads. And, you know, you know, in that back bay, you used to catch fish there. But now there's maybe 50 to 70 yards of pads to get back to that same fishable water. What I found challenging is moving around in shallow pads without disrupting, you know, the fish out ahead of the boat or whatever. But hearing you talk about their tubers, it's something I've witnessed. And I think our fishery is actually better because we have more suitable spawning habitat now it's just right. a lot less convenient for the anglers because they can get in there and really they don't have to leave. Once they spawn, they can stay in that shallow stuff in our case, you know, basically till winter
4: because there's food, there's forage. It's all there. Yeah. You touched on a great point too, Danny, and that is stealth. When you move through a grass bed, you want, in fact, I'll use a push pole sometimes uh, trolling motors nowadays are are so much better than they used to be They're They're quiet. The brackets are quiet. You know, I'm I'm using the the power pole move and that thing's extremely silent. I've had good success before it came out. I was using the uh, the force by Garmin, very quiet, strong, powerful trolling motor, and it goes through vegetation with a lot of stealth. And that's very important. You know, the fish are going to know you're there before you find them in most cases. I mean, Mm -hmm. so you got to keep that in mind in Florida. I was raised using uh, stealth as I moved through grass, but m- even more important was making long casts. You know, our our water, relatively speaking, is shallow. Uh, the fish are, in most cases, less than five feet deep, and in a lot of cases, less than three feet deep. So it becomes more of a lateral approach. You're not able to always flip like I did that day with with Vance on a lake here in North Florida, which was a vertical pre- presentation next to the boat in many cases you're having to make long casts, a very lateral horizontal uh, presentation and and trying to keep as much distance between you and the fish even though there's a dense field of vegetation if you go plowing in there with a trolling motor and, and that's especially true in lily pads it's mm-hmm. like it, it just telegraphs your location and your movement to the fish that are in there and the the biggest fish are going to react the f- first and, and negatively. They're they're gonna, it's it's a a flag to them, a red flag. So they're gonna move off. And and a lot of times if you're catching small fish, that's the reason why is you've spooked the larger fish. That's awesome to think about. What are your thoughts on? So let's say I push pole
1: into an area that's thick. You know, I'm talking the kind of pad fields that you guys, not not the isolated six or eight pads, but I'm talking pad fields. Right. Do you feel like do you feel like vegetation? Does that give the fish a sense of security where maybe I could push, pull my way in and sit quietly for a few minutes? And do they kind of move back around you? Can you almost like hunting them? Can you slide into position and and wait for them to show up again? Is that a legit tactic?
4: Yeah, actually, you can do that. Um, You know, I'm I'm noted for being a slow fisherman. I mean, I have glacial speed. I'm slow. (laughs) I have people come and ask me if I'm broke down. I fish so slow sometimes. But the, the, the point is 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 patience is key and, and yeah once you get into an area I try to move very little. I'll use my power poles a lot. Um, I, I believe they catch me more fish. Just once I get into an area, I'll drop the poles and I'll fish 360 degrees around the boat in a field of grass, and and you'd be surprised how it'll the fish will start showing up. Um, mm-hmm. you, you may spook them in, initially, but sometimes they're curious. You know, it all comes down to mood of the fish. Uh, you know, if they're in a negative mood, nothing you're gonna do is right. But there's days when you can't do anything wrong. I mean, you can plow into a grass bed and flip right next to the boat and catch an eight pounder that was you know, oblivious to your movements. But that's not usually the case. Usually it's about stealth and a lengthy presentation that catches the most fish and grass.
1: Last question for me on that topic, because I, I'm, I'm picking your brain for personal reasons now. I know we have a common friend in yes. TH Marine. Yes. I have felt like I have felt like in in pad situations, the Hydrowave has helped me. And I feel like I, in my mind, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, I kind of look at it again, equating it to hunting. I don't know that I'm bringing them in, but I kind of look at it as a cover scent. The same way I would want some dirt smell on my hunting clothes. I like that hydrowave wave in that those close quartered environments as a cover sound. Maybe it keeps a little bit of other noise down. Have you given any consideration to that? And as a hydro, I, I part have not to be
4: honest way. with you. And I think that's ingenious in a way. I have not thought of it, <laughs> it to mask your presence. Um, but what I do like about it is I have seen it perform really well, especially on schooling fish related to grass beds, or when bait fish are teaming in an area but there's not a lot of activity and you seems like when you fire up that that you know that unit uh something happens it can trigger Mm -hmm. a feed so yeah i agree there are times but i I like your idea it's it's food for thought for sure well just that you know you're gonna no matter how stealthy you
1: are you're gonna make some noise so i think maybe putting a few positive sounds out there to go with my negative ones it can't hurt but Uh, I don't know. That helped me a lot. I appreciate you letting me dig into that because that was self-serving guys Uh, for the listeners out there. That was Danny learning how to attack a pad field. And I got some good tidbits there. Vance, we've had Bernie for a little while here. You got anything you want to add? Maybe throw out a little bone for the Southern guys down there.
3: Well, I will say this. Bernie is a regular Renaissance man. For those who don't know, he's not only written, but also illustrated a lot of articles in Bassmaster magazine over the years. Uh, His writings have appeared at a lot of places. Bernie, if people want to dig in a little further and read some more of your thoughts on their own, do some research, where are some places we can find your writings? Where are some resources where we can learn a little more about your, your thought processes?
4: Yeah, if you go to my website, there's, uh there are tabs at the bottom of, of my image that will lead you to the columns I write at insideline.net, which is Gary Yamamoto Custom Baits or Yamamoto Customs. Um, that that's one platform that I write for. I, I do a regular feature there that's basically a, how I recount my uh, tournament experiences on the Elite Series. And then I also write for Just Fishing, uh, which is a Canadian publication. It's justfishing.ca uh, for Canada. Uh, I write for them periodically. And also I've, I'm a frequent contributor to Bassmaster.com. Uh, you just follow my my columns there and you'll get you know, there's an archive that you can Google, but uh, I, I write on numerous platforms. I try to stay as visible as possible. And a lot of my writing is, is instruction based um, techniques or ways to find and catch catch bass. And, you know, the one thing I'd like to leave with your listeners also is no matter where you go in the country or North America, for that matter, or abroad, I've, I've made the same basic concepts work in Japan. I've made them work in Europe, bass or bass, wherever you go. And they relate to grass in much the same way, no matter where I, if it's Ontario or the Delta in California, uh, the grass lakes in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Gunnersville, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's just, that there's basic principles. And if you do your homework and, and learn some basic approaches, you know, be familiar with different techniques and lure, lure choices as they relate to grass. No matter where you go, you're probably going to be effective. Awesome.
1: Thank you for your awesome, time. your
3: you, Barney. Appreciate it. Yeah.
4: Yeah, man.
1: Yeah. And Bernie, when I put this up on the web, I'll put some links to those things you mentioned at the end there so we can get folks, uh, if they want to learn more, they can read about some of your work. And we want to thank you for sharing your time and we want to wish you a speedy recovery. Thank uh, we'll you. be covering some covering some Elite Series events next year. Probably have Vance's mug at a few of them. So look forward to catching you up with you on the docks again here soon.
3: I appreciate hey, it. Hey, April, April in Florida. You asked yeah. me the other day if I'd seen the schedule of Bassmaster. How do you feel about? We're a little later. Ooh, yes. We're getting out of those cold fronts. Stable weather.
4: Yeah, it's it's going to be All different. Right. Uh, you know, the Harris Chain in in April and the uh, St. Johns River in April. That they're, they're going to be completely different. Uh, events the guys that were familiar with bed fishing are going to have to find something else to do unless we have a super cold winter it's going to be post-spawn patterns and the fish are going to be spread out and and probably in many cases not in a very good mood um so the bite window is going to be pretty narrow
3: it's going to be sounds interesting
1: like to me, yeah it sounds like to me local experience might come into play so we might be talking to bernie in a winter circle next year i hope so man
4: yeah man that'd be good i appreciate that
1: Well, listen, we'll cut you loose. We thank you for your time. We'll get this posted. And guys, if you want to know more, check him out. We'll have the links at the bottom when we're done today. Thanks all. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you.
3: Thanks for listening to this week's Angler's Channel
0: Insider Podcast, presented by Sportsman's Warehouse, also brought to you in part by Pro Charging Systems, makers of the Dual Pro Chargers, TH Marine, Trick Step, Toyota Bonus Bucks, Costa Conserve and Compete, and of course, AnglersChannel.com, your number one tournament bass fishing resource.